Okay, and then the last thing that you have is a page. Well, yours don't look like this, but sorry, I couldn't, re- I couldn't, couldn't reproduce them in color. That would have been a bit pricey, but I, uh, I did reproduce them in black and white for you. One side has maps, and the other side has a couple of photographs. And uh, the maps give you a, a broad overview and then a little closer look, and then uh, the rather poor photographs in black and white, I'm sorry, uh, at least give you a sense of the way Colossae looks today. And in that bottom image, uh, you can see um, Mount Cadmus in the background, and Colossae would have been in the Lycus River Valley, which is right about the middle of the photograph uh, as the picture goes into that. I suggest you go online and find these pictures. There's just type in Colossae, C-O-L-O-S-S-A-E, and uh, for images, and you'll find all kinds of images, and you can uh, get those in beautiful color the way they ought to be viewed. Uh, that's exactly where I got them. So having said that, uh, let me say that uh, I've been praying about uh, where God would have me to go in terms of our uh, sermon study, and... Um, I have been drawn to Colossians for a number of months and uh, in my own devotions. I just can't get away from the book and came to the conclusion that uh, after uh, prayer in the last few weeks that that's where God would have me to, uh, to go for a while and for us to, uh, to share together in the book. I have never, to my knowledge, preached through Colossians. That is also witnessed by my library uh, I remember uh, Tristan asking me earlier last semester if he could borrow a commentary on Colossians. I couldn't find one, and uh, I realized why. I finally have unpacked my books, and I don't have any commentaries on Colossians, which is a surefire indication that I've never preached through the book. Um, and so uh, I had to borrow some from a friend of mine and uh, be putting a book order in <laughs> this week. Uh, for a few of those, but anyway, this is this is where we're going to to go, and there are some very specific reasons for that. I think you'll see as we go along. Looking at the book, uh, Colossians chapter one, don't you follow as I read? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers who are in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, Colossians is an interesting letter. It's interesting because uh, it's written to a church that Paul had never personally visited. He never went there. But he heard about the church, and he had personal influence 
in one of the lives of the individuals that is mentioned in conjunction with Colossians, a guy by the name of Philemon, in whose home a church was meeting. But at the time of the writing, Paul is sitting in house arrest in Rome, uh, basically in prison. He's not in prison in the sense of bars and jail cells and whatever like that. As I mentioned, he was able to be in a home that must have been provided in some way by believers in the area. But he's, he's under house arrest, which uh, in the Roman system of things meant that he was chained to a guard 24-7. Uh, I don't know about you, but <laughs> having some guy hanging out on my wrist 24-7, I think we get pretty old. But uh, Paul did, did not, uh, you know, just kind of implode under those circumstances. In fact, uh, he took that opportunity to receive guests. They were able to visit him there. He continued his ministry very actively discipling people. And he took that opportunity to write a number of letters. And among those letters, uh, Colossians is one. There was actually a letter written to the Laodiceans to the church at Laodicea. And we don't have that letter. Uh, it's one of the lost letters. In fact, there probably are a number of letters. We may have lost one or two of the Corinthian letters that just kind of disappeared. And some people say, well, boy, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit uh, didn't think that they added anything to the Scriptures. Uh, and the ones that we have clearly are inspired by God and trustworthy and errant and infallible, but that doesn't mean that every time Paul opened his mouth, he was infallible. So we don't know what those letters contain, and, and uh, they, they were just lost along the way. But we have Colossians, and we have Philemon in our Bibles. And those two uh, letters are closely connected, and they are for a reason. Because while Paul was in house arrest in Rome, and this is probably toward the end of the A.D. 50s, say 57, 58, 60, somewhere along in there. A slave by the name of Onesimus found his way to Paul. And this created a very interesting situation, because this is Paul's first serious imprisonment. He has appealed to Caesar after that awful uh, kind of uh, disaster that occurred in Jerusalem, where he was taken into chains, it's been two years, he finally ended up in Rome. He appealed his case to Caesar, which he had every right to do. And uh, he is fully expecting, in the present circumstances, to be exonerated. But now, this slave, Onesimus, ends up where he's being held in house arrest. And you can see how the situation could be dicey because nothing has changed about human beings over the years. And Onesimus is a runaway slave. The word fugitive actually comes from the Latin word for runaway slaves. And if you harbored a fugitive, you could also become guilty uh, of receiving stolen property, because that's what they were called, harboring the fugitive, and you could be subject to the same kind of penalties as the slave himself. Now, Paul is fairly certain that he is not going to be in trouble 
for the riot and all of those things that happened, that when Caesar hears his case, he's going to be exonerated. But harboring Onesimus presents a whole different kind of problem. And uh, it's, it's kind of obvious as you read the letters and put them together that Paul wants to get Onesimus back to Philemon as soon as possible. But not before he has the opportunity to influence this slave for Christ. In fact, while Onesimus is there with Paul, he receives Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Um, he repents of his sin and whatever led to, to his fleeing. And uh, his heart is changed. And he is willing to go back to um, his master, to Philemon, who, as I mentioned, happens to have one of these house churches in Colossae. And part of the reason we may suspect that Onesimus found his way to Paul was because Paul and Philemon were close. They had a good relationship. Uh, Even though Paul had never been to Colossae, apparently he had personally led Philemon to faith in Christ. Maybe uh, Philemon was on a business trip to Ephesus or something like that. We don't know the circumstances. But Paul very likely led him to Christ. And they had this relationship that was very tight. And Epaphras, one of Paul's associates, was sent into the Lycus Valley. We'll look at that in just a moment. But he was sent into the Lycus Valley to preach and evangelize the region. And Epaphras started the churches at Laodicea, at Hierapolis, and at Colossae. And so Paul has this relationship with these churches kind of by proxy and by the fact that he has had an influence in Philemon's life. So, so here's the situation. Paul is going to send Onesimus back home with a letter. A letter of introduction to Philemon saying, Philemon, and I love, I love the way Paul writes the letter. If, if you haven't read Philemon lately, go home and read it. It'll take you about two minutes. <laughs> it's, it's just a very, very short one-page, one-chapter letter. And, and Paul, as he's writing to Philemon, he says, Philemon, I really want you to receive Onesimus. I mean, Philemon could have had the guy crucified. Onesimus I'm talking about. He could have had him crucified. He could have done some terrible things to him. Even though he's a leader in the church, that was Roman law. And people don't, you know, have total transformation overnight. I mean, who knows what he could have done. So Paul says, I want you to receive him as a brother in the Lord. In fact, I want you to receive him like you would receive me. Wow, that's really kind of laying it on, you know. I want you to take him back the way you would take me back. I want you to treat him like you'd treat me. And he says, and if you find it in your heart, um, he, he's very useful and helpful. <laughs> he's almost implying you could send him back to me, you know. And he says, uh, but, um, but I wouldn't impose that on you. Uh, oh, did I forget to mention that you owe your very life and eternal salvation to me, by the way? <laughs> did, I, did I leave that part out, Philemon? Uh, Paul is really painting the picture pretty heavy here, saying, Philemon, you owe me one. And, and this is payback time, and I want you to take an Onesimus, and I want you to receive him as a brother in the Lord and a member of the church, and, and treat him well, and be good to him. But meanwhile, Paul has also heard from Epaphras that there's, there's trouble in these churches. False teaching has come in, and, and there's, there's some stuff going on 
that has Paul deeply, deeply concerned. And so, as he sends this letter with Tychicus and Onesimus, don't you love these names? Uh, he sends this letter with them. He sends a letter to Laodicea, and he sends this letter to Colossae at the same time. And he tells the two churches, he says, you Laodiceans, read what I wrote to Colossae. You Colossians, you read what I wrote to Laodicea. Swap the letters back and forth. And, and he sends these three letters with these fellows. And says, they'll tell you all about me, but I have some things that I need to share with you. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take a look at the map for just a minute, because um, it's kind of good to get in our minds a little bit of, a, of, a, of an image of what's going on. If you look at the map on the top, you can see way up in the upper left corner the city of Rome on Italy's boot right there in the middle on the western uh, shore. And if you look in the bottom right corner, you see Jerusalem all the way down in the bottom lower right. And that kind of gives you an idea of the Mediterranean Sea and the relationship of Italy and Greece and Asia, uh, Asia Minor, and on down into Palestine and Jerusalem in that region. And as you look at that, look kind of in the middle down in Asia Minor, and you see Ephesus is on the coast, and Colossae is inland from Ephesus, actually about 110 miles. So if you were traveling around the region to kind of get some, some mileage in your mind, from Colossae to Rome is 1,200 miles. From Ephesus to Colossae is 110 miles. It's another five or 600 miles to Jerusalem. And that kind of gives you the picture. Now, Paul personally started the church in Ephesus on the coast. Ephesus was a huge um, uh, oceanside, uh, commercial city, trade city, huge center. Paul spent three years in Ephesus and uh, focused his ministry there. And apparently, while he was there, he sent Epaphras inland. And if you look at the map on the bottom, you find Ephesus, again, over on the uh, seaside. If you go inland and pick up the Meander River, <laughs> it meanders through the mountains, if you pick up the Meander River and follow it to where it branches, right at that branch, the Lycus River heads off to the south. Laodicea and Hierapolis are on either sides of the river three miles apart. And further upstream is Colossae on the south side of the Lycus River. So when I talk about the Lycus River Valley, I'm talking about this little branch of the river that goes off here to the south from the Meander River. And above it, if you can see anything at all from these crazy pictures, but above it were the mountains, the Cadmus Mountain Range, or Cadmus Mountain. And in these towns of... Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, they were noted for their therapeutic and medicinal waters. There were two things that characterized these towns, 
And Hierapolis kind of got known as the spa of the area, you know. That they were the place to go for a day spa treatment. And by the way, you could travel between all of these towns in a day if you wanted to. It was 12 miles to Colossae, 3 miles from Laodicea and, and Hierapolis. But the, the things that they were noted for is hot mineral springs. And those were very therapeutic and healing. They, they did a lot of good for people. The other thing is, uh, or did I say springs or streams? Springs. Hot springs. Cold streams. you got to keep those two separate. Hot springs, cold streams. Don't say it too fast. You get all mixed up. But the cold streams were snow-fed off the Cadmus Mountain. So they flowed down into the Lycus Valley, into the Lycus River. And they were also, it was very hard water, very mineralized water, very cold, and very invigorating. And people could have their choice. They could either have a hot spring or a cold stream. And whatever ailed them, they got benefit from those two things. Remember uh, John's message from Jesus in the book of Revelation when he's writing to the church at Laodicea? He says, I wish that you were hot or cold. But you're neither. Because you're lukewarm, I, you just make me sick. But hot or cold were two beneficial things. Oftentimes we think of that saying, well, Jesus is saying either be for me or against me, but don't be on the fence. But actually what he's saying is, if you were hot, you'd be useful. If you're cold, you'd be useful. (laughs) They knew what he was talking about. But you're not useful (laughs) because you're neither one. You're just lukewarm water. And it doesn't do anybody any good. I wish you were hot or cold. Well, that was what the region was noted for. Hierapolis, like I said, that was the day spa area. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy town. Colossae upstream was not so wealthy. And eventually the trade route shifted. I don't know if you've driven along old highways where they used to have motels along tourist ways. But when I was in East Tennessee on 19E, there's a lot of those. You know, they're, they're the Ma and Pa motels that had 10 to 20 rooms in a long, uh, one-story kind of flat area. And um, usually separate office. And they would boast things like color television, hot water, you know, or something like that. And um, then they built the interstates. And all those places now, if you travel along the road and you look at those places, they're falling down. They haven't been painted in decades. The grass is growing up. The property is not particularly valuable. The traffic is somewhere else now. The business closed decades ago. Uh, the people aren't even around that used to have those establishments. That was kind of the situation that Colossi was in a little bit. When the trade route shifted, they were kind of left down, actually it's upstream, but they were kind of left out in the cold. And they didn't have the influence or the wealth or the power of Laodicea. But they did have a university, and they did have a um, valuable textile industry. Sheep were grown in the area that had amazing wool. Some of them had... 
black wool that was naturally shiny and beautiful. But Colossae in particular was noted for a purplish-pink dye called Colossina. And that dye was made from a flower that was unique to the area, but because of the processing in the mineral water of the region, apparently it brought out the rich color of this dye. And when they dyed cloth and fabric and yarn or whatever, with this uh, <coughs> purplish-pink dye, it was coveted. Uh, it was popular all over the empire, and it was the only region where it could be found. So Colossae kind of had that going for it. So when you think about Colossians, and you think about where it was, think about the great seafaring uh, city of Ephesus, the great metropolis, the great influence, but go inland about 100 miles to this Lycus Valley region, and think of these three churches, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, that were all started by Epaphras, probably the same time Paul was in Ephesus, that, um, that all had the same kind of background in history. And at the time that Paul was writing them, they have a problem. And the thing that draws our attention to these books are the people and the problem. It's helpful to get the geography in mind, but understanding the people and the problem is, is very specific because it has parallels for us today. What do we know about the people? Well, the region is Phrygia. And one of the things we know about Phrygia is, do you recall from the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, who among others, was present when the Holy Spirit came upon the group and Peter started preaching. The Phrygians. Now, they weren't just any Phrygians, because only the Jews would have been in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. These three cities had a large Jewish population. Colossae was not as big as the other two. But all three of these cities shared a large Jewish population together because one of the uh, ancient kings, 500 B.C., had moved them there. And so there, was a, there were a number of Jews from that region who would have traveled to Jerusalem to be in the feast and the festivities and were there at Pentecost when Peter preached his first sermon. And the Phrygians heard him in their native language. So we know that Jews were present from this region on the day of Pentecost. It is undoubtable that when they returned home, that some of them may have been born again. They may have be become Christians. That others had seen the, the phenomena and reported the, the strange events that they had observed while they were in Jerusalem for Passover and stayed for the festivities and and the day of Pentecost. And so there was some background there. But like many people, when they get kind of away from home, you know, the Jews that lived in Jerusalem were kind of sticklers for all the rules. They were right there under the thumb of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's like being a Catholic in Rome. You know, it's kind of hard to, to get too far from the mother church when they're right there on top of you. But the Jews that moved away from Jerusalem 
became more integrated into the society and culture. Even though they didn't lose their Jewishness, they were more what we would today call liberal. That could be said to a certain extent of Jews in Alexander, Alexandria and Egypt. It could certainly be said of Jews living in Asia Minor. Because rather than clustering in ghettos, as has been the practice of Orthodox Jews throughout the centuries, these Jewish people integrated within the population. They had in, invested themselves in the populace, in the commerce of the region, and lived among the people scattered throughout the, the, the general population. And as a consequence, there was some influence. Not so much that it took away their Jewishness, but enough that it made them less than ultra-rigid. The other group, another group that is present in this area, of course, are the Greeks. And Colossae had a university, as did Laodicea and others. And the Greeks were proud of their, their learning, of their wisdom. They liked to study, um, you know, what's the meaning of life and what's it all about and how can we uh, live a better life or a higher life and uh, how do we connect with God? I mean, these were questions that Greeks routinely discussed and debated. And it was certainly true of the cities in this Lycus Valley. They had that strong Greek culture and influence and learning and love of wisdom. But they were also in a region of the world where magic and mysticism and spiritism was rife. Remember when Paul went to Ephesus and that church was started there? And do you remember in the book of Acts reading that uh, there was a great revival and repentance and people turned away from their spiritism and, and their magic and they brought their charms and amulets and all those kind of things and made a big bonfire and burned all these things. And we're told in the book of Acts that the, the, the quantity and the value of what they burned was 50,000 Denarii. Now, a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. So that is 150 years worth of wages that people had just spent on trinkets to wear around their neck and ward off evil spirits. But they believed in them. And they, you know, they rubbed them and they prayed over them and they practiced them and they were important to them. And they had the statues in their uh, by their front doors, and they had things mortared into the wall of their houses. This was common practice. And so all of this influence is in this region where you have the mixture of Jewish ceremonialism and Greek philosophy and the ancient mysticism of the region. It's interesting that no matter how educated people get, they can't seem to pull away from some of those spiritistic roots, because it's not just uh, an ideology. There really is a power that is present in that kind of thing. And one of the lessons that we need to take away from this understanding is that there is a close connection always between church and culture. 
in the area of the church. One of two things is always true. Either the church is influencing the culture in times of great revival and spiritual renewal, like the Great Awakenings. The church influences the culture. We are salt and light. And if you go back even to the founding fathers and the founding of the United States, you can see that influence. People who try to rewrite the history of our country and write out the spirituality are just fools. They fail to acknowledge the obvious truths. That, that the framers of the Constitution and those who uh, cherished religious freedom and the Bill of Rights and all of those things were people who had a strong Christian background. Now, some of them were nuts. I mean, you can read the history and figure that out, but not all of them. And the church in the Great Awakenings of the middle 1700s and the, the Puritan passion and even the founding of America and all of those kinds of things that drove the beginnings of this country, the church was a powerful influence that shaped the laws and the values and the, the things that we hold sacred. Today, the culture is influencing the church. We are in a spiritual backwater and we are being affected by the, the common ideologies of our day. We are not such a reckoning force. You may read the statistics and find out how many people claim to be Christian, but then you can read George Barna and his surveys, and you can discover that those who claim to be Christian do not think or behave hardly any differently than the world. The church is being affected by culture. And there are Christians who deny the truthfulness of Scripture, who deny the deity of Christ, who deny the existence of hell, who deny uh, on and on the, the, the great truths of the faith, who accept alternate lifestyles that the Bible says are anathema, who um, tolerate behaviors that the Scripture prohibits, and on and on the list goes. And what we find happening in Colossians is that this church, even though it had come to life in Jesus Christ, was populated by a group of people with this Greek-slash-Jewish background who lived in a region of philosophy and spiritism, and the church was being influenced by the thinking going on all around it. And that's something that we need to be aware of, because it's happening uh, even today. The problem is that while they had been deeply moved by the gospel, and appear to have... Uh, a sincere love for God as well as each other. Passion and sincerity in following Jesus Christ are not sufficient for developing spiritual maturity 
and a steadfast faith. Let me say that again because it's really important. Spiritual passion and sincerity in following Jesus Christ is not sufficient to produce spiritual maturity and steadfastness in the faith. One of the things that has characterized the history of revivalism, present and past, is that when revival comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out on a region, and many, many people come to faith in Christ, the very parable of the soils that Jesus told becomes reality in in vivid observation. That many seeds spring up and the growth occurs quickly, but there's no root, there's no depth, and as soon as the sun comes out or the heat or things get challenged, they drift away. There's no root in them. There's no strength. And as a consequence, uh, they wither up. Most often, they are carried astray by other kinds of thinking that is not true to the Gospel. I remember Laura Livingston talking about the revival in Cote d'Ivoire, and what she said about that region was when the revival came, where hundreds of thousands came to faith in Christ, that the characteristic reality was it was a mile wide and an inch deep. And because of the rich heritage of animism and spiritism in the culture, Christianity became a synchronistic blend, a syncretistic blend of all of that stuff kind of layered on top of faith in Christ. And he became simply another God added to their spiritual bag of hopefulness. Okay, I'll take Jesus too. As an added insurance. But I'm going to keep appeasing the spirits. And one of the greatest challenges in the revival there was to train pastors fast enough and train people fast enough to, to focus on the purity of Christ. And, and pull away from that other stuff. Because we're not just talking about the way people think. We're talking about things that affect our lives, our behavior, our choices. They determine how we live. As, as a person thinks in their heart, in that way they live. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. What you really believe governs your behavior down deep. And if you want to know what you believe, don't take a test on your intellectual knowledge. Look at your behavior. That's the key to what you really believe in. Where your faith really is. It's in how you live. We cannot discount 
the importance of right thinking. Because if we do, we're going to end up shipwrecked in our behavior, in the choices that we make. Paul's very concerned about the Colossians for this reason. Because they have all of this influence from their culture that is beginning to distract them from the purity and the simplicity of Jesus Christ. And it's going to affect them. He wrote Ephesians about the same time, probably a little after Colossians, most scholars think. And it's in Ephesians chapter 4 that he says, uh, you need to grow up in Christ. You need to receive the teaching of the gospel. So that you're no longer tossed here and there by every wave and wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, if you don't see your way through the conflicting thinking of your day and have the straight truth of Christ, you're not going to grow up. You're going to fall apart and be tossed back and forth like a ship with no sail, no rudder, and no anchor. You're going to be adrift, floating all over the place. Friends, I'm convinced that this is the problem that we face in the church today. And as I prayed over us this year and prayed about our church and prayed about kind of where we are There's two things that stand out for me from Colossians as being really important. One is that we have a passionate love for Jesus Christ. That we love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. That we have a passion for Christ. But you know what's the truth? I can't be responsible for your passion. There's nothing I can do to change your passion other than pray for you. And I don't mean to minimize the role of prayer. But I cannot directly influence your passion for Christ. That's between you and the Lord. I'm praying that our passion will be kindled, that that God will take the sparks and fan them to a brightly burning flame. And that we will be characterized again by our first love of being head over heels in love with Jesus. But I can't make that happen. But the other thing that is necessary for spiritual maturity is solid teaching and understanding of the truth. Of who Jesus is and what it means to be His follower. And that I am responsible for. Paul says to the Ephesians in that same chapter, this is why God gave you pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry that you might grow up into Jesus Christ. And teaching the truth is what God has called me to do. For that, I am directly responsible. And as we get into Colossians, we're going to see how the the focus on Jesus Christ gives us the fortification we need, that if the passion is there, there will be growth. Both have to be present. You can either be in love with Jesus 
But without knowledge, your zeal is going to run you afoul of truth and you're going to end up shipwrecked in faith someday. Something will bowl you over and you won't see it coming. You'll get caught up in something strange and odd. If you have knowledge without passion, you're going to have good orthodoxy and be dead. That was the problem in Ephesus. They had fixed their problem with bad teaching, but in the process they had lost their passion. Jesus said you need to go back and do the things you did at first and rekindle your first love. You've gone astray. Your heart has become cold. So many times people are right in their head and wrong in their heart. And in the same way, they will not grow. We need both. And I'm convinced that the church today is is in a crisis. Yes, Christianity is popular in America. It's talked about everywhere. Nothing else by Tim Tebow. We're being faced with Christianity all over the place. And I'm not disparaging him. I appreciate, uh, I think he's the real deal. You know, you see some people that are, that are kind of like a flash in the pan, uh, but he's the real thing I, from childhood up. I appreciate that. He's been a follower of Christ and faithful all through high school and college, and, and uh, he's being faithful where he is. And by the way, that's what a Christian ought to be, whether the limelight is your kitchen table your neighborhood or national television, if God gives you an opportunity, you're His ambassador. You need to be talking. So He's doing the right thing. But having said that, Christianity is popular in America, but it is also watered down and weakened. The church has bought into pluralism and tolerance and acceptance. We, we, we you know, we somehow bought the, the, the lie that we have to accept everybody's ideas as equally valid. Friends, we have to accept everybody as equally valuable. But not their ideas. All ideas do not equal the same. The Scripture is very clear regarding morality. There are no alternatives. The Bible is very plain on morality. The Bible is very plain about alternate lifestyles. There are no options. The Bible is very plain about the person of Jesus Christ and the way to have eternal life. We have very popular preachers today. One of great renown who has recently left his church and is starting to proclaim his gospel of love. He's even written a book about it. But when you distill it down to the bottom line, what you come out with is a universalism that says, in the end, God will take all comers. Everybody gets there eventually, because God is a God of love. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible is very plain that there is only one way, one path, one person, one God and Savior Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom eternal life is offered, there is no other way. There's no one else who paid for our sins. 
There's no one else who came back out of the grave. There's no one who ever lives to make intercession for us other than Jesus Christ. And He is the only name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. He is the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. But we have been sold a bill of goods that we're not supposed to talk like that, that that's not loving, it's not kind. What is not loving and kind is to let our friends and neighbors slip into a Christless eternity because we're tolerant of their ideas and never bother to tell them that their beliefs are leading them straight to hell. It does matter. And there is only one way to have life eternal, and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way. We're faced with that crisis today. We ought to be loving. We ought to be gracious. We ought to be kind to everyone. We ought to embrace everyone as having equal value. I am willing to defend the right of an atheist to spout his atheism because we have freedom of speech. And I will defend the freedom of speech and his right to say what he wants. Truth will win in the end. But that does not mean that I have to accept his thinking or teaching or anyone else's. We cannot compromise the truth. In Colossians, we're in great danger of doing that because of the influence. And so as we get into this book, we're going to see not only the preeminence of Jesus Christ and the focus upon Him. He is so exalted in this letter. But we are also going to see insight into the path for true godliness. We're going to see why religion never works. We're going to discover why rules and disciplines always fail. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 is rather pointed and it says, you think that don't handle, don't taste, don't touch is going to help you out. And these regulations have absolutely no value against fleshly indulgence. There must be an inner transformation of your heart and a governing by the Holy Spirit. He will change you from the inside out, but it doesn't work the other way around. We're going to learn a lot about those kinds of relationships. We're going to learn about uh, business and home and family and Christian ethics, if you please. But in the midst of it, Jesus Christ is lifted up. And Paul says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we can present everyone complete in Jesus Christ. And so, if we take anything away from this message this morning, I hope that you will take away the dual, the dual ingredients in spiritual maturity. That you must have passion, but it cannot be zeal without knowledge. It must be accompanied by sound teaching, 
so that as the two are blended, a passionate love for Jesus Christ, grounded in truth, there is a maturity of faith that brings steadfastness. Paul prays for the Colossians in chapter 1. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And I, a month or so, five weeks ago, suggested that you make a list of ten or less people for whom you were willing to pray a minute a day. So ten minutes. I, I hope that you have that list where you can find it. I hope that you're praying for those people. Um... I will be honest with you, in, in case you're coming under some kind of guilt trip, that uh, I have not been successful in doing that every single day. Um, but I keep the list handy, and I'm praying for those people regularly, and uh, find that they're on my mind all the time. It has made a difference in my thinking. And I bring that up because... Sometimes when we pray, we expect an answer in a day or two, maybe a week. And not all prayers get answered that quickly. Paul prayed for the church at Colossae, that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of God. He wanted them to get it. He wanted them to come back to a solidly grounded faith. That apparently did not happen in his lifetime, which is very interesting. In fact, Paul apparently died before he saw a revival in the churches of Asia Minor. He wrote in one of his late letters to Timothy, he said, every church in Asia has turned away from me. There, there are two sad verses in the Bible to me. One of them is when, when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Will you go also? That, that, to me, just strikes a sad chord. Everyone else has left, and he's only got that little band around him, and he asks the question, Are you going to go too? And Paul, who labored predominantly among the churches of Asia, said, they've all turned away from me. The Apostle John moved to Ephesus about the time Paul was passing off the scene. Apparently, he was eventually beheaded for his faith. But John moved to Ephesus to take up the torch of teaching truth. And into the Lycus Valley, apparently, Philip the Evangelist moved along with two of his daughters. He had three. One of them married and moved to Rome, but two of his daughters, who were also known as prophetesses, landed in the Lycus Valley. One of the churches was in the home of a woman by the name of Nympha. And it's obvious that these women had a great influence in the region, because as we move into the second century, we find that as the heresies begin to develop around the person of Christ, and there were many, the Arians came up with the idea that he really was never uh, God, that he was only a man, first of the created beings. That's still 
taught today under the heading of Jehovah's Witness. There were other heresies that grew up around the person of Christ. Interestingly enough, it was at about the turn of the century that some of the strongest teaching of orthodoxy came from this region. And church historians and the comments of the church fathers attribute a significant amount of that influence to the daughters of Philip the Evangelist, who were much older women by this time. You used to do the math. They had to be in their 80s. But apparently they were holding for the truth. And John had made a difference in Ephesus and in the region. And so he is able to write from Christ in the Revelation. You have tested those who were false teachers and exposed them. And you have returned to the truth. And this area that had become so at risk for spiritual disaster from false teaching became a strong basis of influencing the church for godliness and right thinking into the second century A.D. And I find it interesting that Paul's prayers are answered some 50 years, 30 to 50 years after his death. Friends, when we are praying in the Spirit and in the will of God, do you remember that picture in Revelation, the bowl of incense that is rising up at the throne? And John says, you know, what is this? And the answer is, these are the prayers of all the saints that are continually rising up before the Father. God never forgets your intercession. We live in a culture, a time when all the solutions on all the TV programs are perfectly satisfied in 30 minutes or an hour. Actually, I don't think there's any more half-hour shows anymore. It's an hour show with a half-hour of commercials. But anyway, they all get solved in an hour. But in God's economy... Sometimes it takes a lifetime, sometimes more, but he is faithful. When we pray, God acts. When we join with him in the accomplishment of his purposes, nothing is lost. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians, which he did not see, answered in his lifetime was answered in great power at a time when the church, the whole church throughout the empire, was at great vulnerability and risk. That church had that powerful influence, that region, the Lycus Valley, in the second century, and became a center of truthfulness. May God encourage us May he remind us that it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, you can make a powerful difference as a proclaimer and herald of truth. And it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. As long as we have breath, 
and life on this side, God can use us mightily in the accomplishment of his purposes. Father, I pray this morning that you would excite us and enthuse us about the letter to the Colossians, and that we would go away this morning encouraged that you are a God who always remembers and you are always at work. And I pray, Father, that you would rekindle our passion, that we would be a people who are passionately in love with Jesus Christ, unashamedly so. But at the same time, that we would be given a spirit of wisdom and understanding in the true knowledge of Him, so that we would be well-grounded and stable, filled with love, filled with truth, that beautiful combination that John highlights in his gospel in the first chapter when he says, the law came through Moses, grace and truth have come. Through Jesus Christ. Live your life in us, Lord Jesus, in both ways. Amen.